Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is the founder of the Reagan newsletter, Tim Murray. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Now, we're going to talk about what the Reagan newsletter is, for those who don't know, and we're also going to be discussing three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. So, without further ado, let's start with the first most obvious question. What is the Reagan newsletter? The uh, Ray Gun newsletter is a, I would say weekly, but it's um, less frequent now, but it's a um, uh, trade uh, email newsletter for what I would call the video industry, but is a slightly outdated term now, yeah. um, probably the home entertainment industry and uh, wider film industry as well. We've, the Ray Gun was launched... Um, about uh, 13 years ago, 2010, I think I launched. Mm. Uh, but I've been a trade journalist covering predominantly the video industry since it was still called the video industry. So when you say video uh, industry, you mean v- the boom of the VHS? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. VHS um, and Betamax as was. By the time I joined, um, Betamax was dead. Um, I joined in about um, 1990. I think something like that. And I've worked on various trade magazines, um, some of which closed in the um in about 2008, 2009. Um, and lots of people in the industry kept trying to persuade me to come back and do a do a um uh, what ended up being an email newsletter. So I've been running for 13 odd years, breaking stories, covering I was going to say, so what, what's, a typ- what's a typical leading story for, for the Reagan newsletter? Let's give people a picture of what it is. It will be, uh, we'll talk about the business, what's doing well out there, uh, what's selling well, what titles are on the way, forthcoming titles. We'll talk about uh, box office and what's doing well at the cinema because obviously that will all run into home entertainment um, eventually. We've obviously been tracking physical media um, and where that is because we are, Although we write about digital and digital releases, um, we're less so about streaming. We still cover the streaming market, um, yeah. but 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 we're still very much wedded to to physical media um, as a concept, both on a personal level um, and and on a professional level as well. You know, so this is this is about sort of promoting the idea of to the people who are going to be selling films to people that buy it. This is yeah. what's coming. Yeah, we- yeah, we're going to um, retailers. Um, I mean, it used to be a lot wider uh, retail base than it is now. Yeah. We go to um, HMV. We go to some of the supermarkets that are still stocking it. We go to some of. Uh, we go to a lot of online retailers as well, um, and then various people across the industry. You know, we have a kind of wider brief, or as I see it, a wider brief. We're trying to enthuse people who work in the industry about the industry to make them feel part of something, to make them feel part of a community. Certainly over the last, you know, during our lifespan, um, physical media's um, obviously had a bit of a kicking. Mm. Um, national uh, newspapers were always kind of down on on um, DVD and Blu-ray um, in, in the latter years. Kind of a, kind of what I call it a get with it daddy-o. Mm. kind of viewpoint saying, you know, hey, kids, everyone should be streaming now. What are you still doing with physical media? 
And so we wanted to give um, people in the industry something to feel proud of and feel part of. So we're trying to kind of create a community. Um, although I'm a long-standing uh, journalist, 30 plus years, um, it's written in quite an informal, chatty style as well. Mm. Um, and we cover, yeah, so essentially we're trying, it's a combination of the interesting and the important, you know, important facts for people in the industry, but some interesting stuff as well. We're trying to, you know, work all on the same on the same side, um, mm. what I always say is it's kind of like having a an independent voice. Yes, the studios and distributors will always be telling retailers how brilliant something is and how well it's going to sell. Yeah, We'll try and be an independent um, voice within that. I'm kind of the last man standing now uh, in the home entertainment trade press. Uh, when I started, there were um, three weekly magazines. Um, wow. Uh, still going, which slowly went down to kind of two monthly magazines uh, by the end of the 2000s. Uh, and he's now just me kind of thing. I do other things in the meantime. Um, um, I'm editing a toy magazine at the minute. So the Ray Gun's now more in my spare time. But I love the industry. Um, I'm very, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the industry, big fan of physical media. Well, and I, understand in, I was going to say in saying that, Tim, then in terms of physical media, and obviously this will go out, in what you would call the run up to Christmas, which will be a big, a big time for in the in the in the heyday of physical media. But yeah, yeah. in terms of the, the sort of jungle drums of what's going on with, with what's coming out physical media wise as we hit hit the holiday period, as it were, what are some of the exciting titles that people can look forward to in terms of physical media? Well, there's gonna be the summer's big um theatrical hit. So Barbie's on the way. Oppenheimer's on the way. Obviously, there'll be digital first, but will then be uh, physical media as well. Those have, have obviously, those two biggies have have driven people back into cinemas. Um, and I think they'll drive people back into stores. I think you'll find that some of the, um, I'd be almost certain that, that, that many of the supermarkets or some of the supermarkets who no longer stock physical media regularly will be putting standees at the front of the store with Barbie on it. Yeah. And th that will kind of help people get back into home entertainment. I think it's been um, a good year for um, horror. So something like Talk To Me, uh, which is an outstanding independent horror film. Yeah. Um, will we'll, we'll still be there. And there are still all kinds of um, gems and treasures that, that, that you can find. There still is a DTV market that's kind of worth doing and um, that, that that's worth looking at. And there's, there's, there's little titles there. Um, and I think that there's, um, uh, there's a film I'm just watching at the minute um, called uh, Little Bone Lodge, I think, which is going to be um, on Blu-ray in October. Right. And that's a crappy little film. And I think, uh, and then what you've also got is um, uh, what I'd call the boutique labels. Um, who appeal solidly to the collectors, people like uh, Deep Breath, um, Arrow, um, uh, God, uh, Arrow Studio Canal. Um, Severin, Severin Films. Film. Um, sorry? Severin Films, David Gregory's label. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The BFI um, are, are releasing some great titles. And, and you're seeing... Um, uh, uh, Eureka, a couple of newer entrants like um, Powerhouse, 
um, and Radiance Films. There are a lot of these labels now who are mining everything from from old um, black and white obscure film noir um, through to 70s Italian horror. Um, you're starting to see people bringing out kind of what would be straight-to-video films, but with big video rental hits as well, in, in kind of really nice Blu-ray versions, 4K versions, complete with booklets, lavish packagings. And, and, and that's a really big thing uh, now, and it's not so much the amount of units they sell, but they are all limited edition. They all tend to sell out. Um, so, so in a way, the physical media for film has, has, has gone the way of sort of vinyl, hasn't it? It's, it's really just aimed at its collectors as opposed to... A, yeah, yeah, a I think there is an element of that. Yeah, yeah, there's still a mainstream, a mainstream market, and it's always been traditionally um, VHS um, throughout the '90s and DVD from '98 onwards um, has always been um, a great gifting option. Um, hmm. at the, uh, certainly with the Brit- British public, um, more so than a lot of other countries. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you're still seeing a, um, uh, yeah, it's still a market that's worthwhile. I think you're starting to see physical media, some studios exiting. Um, but but there are studios now in the UK that are kind of putting their products through third-party distributors and things like that. And that proves worthwhile for them. It might not be worth the the studio's doing it, but for an independent to do it, they can still turn a profit. I mean, they have to look at margins and so on. Um, but it's still a very vibrant, worthwhile market. I think the the, the UK has always led the way in, in package media for, for home entertainment. Okay. In terms of films, the UK was always, um, I think, ahead of the US in, in, in how it marketed, how it, how it bought these things into stores. Uh, in terms of what it did with the packaging and, and and exciting ways of presenting it, you know. Brilliant. So if if there's any sort of industry folk listening in who don't know about your letter and want to get hold of it, how do they get the Raygun newsletter? Uh, they can just drop an email uh, with um, subscribe in the header. Uh, you don't even need to um, to say anything nice to me in it. Just just put subscribe <laughs> in a an email to um, info at theraygun.co.uk um the raygun being entirely um as it sounds which is the and then raygun um all one word um, i will put i'll put it in the show notes so people can get yeah. that themselves it's also just as a just as an incidental um in case you ask in case anyone's interested it is called the raygun uh because at the time we launched it um, I briefly ended up having what I call as a sabbatical from journalism, uh, and I was working at um, design agencies, creative agencies. Okay. Um, and everyone I was presenting um, to said, "Yeah, that's great, Tim, but why don't you go back and launch another uh, something else for the trade, um, another publication?" Because I'd already launched a couple of magazines prior to that, um, and they uh, it w- w- were saying, "You know, come on, please come back and do something like that. That's what you should be doing." So I started thinking seriously about that and somebody at one of these studios, a big distributor, said that um, Blu-ray had had not long launched and they said, if you can somehow work um, Blu-ray into the title of your your newsletter, 
I think you'll get more advertising from it. We'll definitely advertise with you. Um, so I had a list of about 50 different names that had uh, Ray or Blue in the title and um, ended up settling on the Ray gun because we could have a... Um, uh, we could have an image of a gun as part of the logo. Um, and, and, and um, you know, for our own house ads, and um, we can quote um, David Bowie's uh, Moon Age Daydream, which has got a great line about uh, your <laughs> ray gun to my ear. Um, so I like the idea of that as well. So hence the ray gun. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that, and thanks for introducing my listeners to the ray gun newsletter. I'll put, like I say, I'll put details in the show notes so people can email you if they want to subscribe. And thank you for your ongoing support of physical media as someone who does who does still buy it, and it will be on my Christmas list, um, no doubt. Um, but let yeah. us move into your three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Without further ado, the clock is ticking, and the first title on your list is 1973's Exorcist. Where, where are you seeing that the first time you see it? Well, I, I was very much a child of the video nasty generation. Okay. Um, and grew up watching um, dubious uh, horror films on, um, uh, on uh, VCRs. Um, initially, for the first few years, it was around um, people's houses who um, – were kind of the early adopters. Um, I had a few mates at school and friends whose, whose parents had had bought into that boom. Um, my uh, my old man was a massive film fan, uh, as it was. He spent his um, childhood and teenage years um, going up to Leicester Square and hanging around um, at film premieres. Um, it, that would have been kind of... Um, uh 1940s um to kind of get autographs he's still got uh there's a uh, somewhere there's an autograph collection of his of various uk and some visiting us film stars so very much um in the blood as it were but um so the exorcist would have been 1979 was one of the first films i ever saw on video um it was around a mate uh called um uh, Ian's house uh, and they used to have the video man come and see us uh, so the first part of the evening would be we'd go around um, uh, Ian's house uh, which is over the road from mine we would um, the guy would come around with a suitcase I, th- I mean I think even rental stores weren't really that prevalent there. And I know it was 1979 because my old man was still alive and he died early in 1980. Um, and they, the guy would come around with a suitcase of films, open them up. They were of um, initial probably, um, you know, annoy a lot of people in the industry because uh, I'm anti-piracy, as many people in the industry are. But this, they would have definitely been hooky uh, films of some form or another and um one of the ones we chose because we've all we'd all heard of it uh so this is before we started kind of going deeper into the world of video nasties and and, and the priest the pre-cert yeah yeah but this was uh this would have been the exist um this may have been a, a a legitimate um, cassette actually because I think it had come out by then already I mean it's worth Maybe, remembering yeah. it's worth remembering and telling people actually that for the, for the younger people listening is 
an original copy of a VHS in 1979 is going to be upward of about £100, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, ironically, um, an original preset copy of the X system VHS now would cost uh, would cost probably about the same or ah. even more. You know, it's a big, there's a big collection because 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 really the studios weren't that sure that home entertainment was a thing, was it? Or or they didn't want to entertain it because they thought theatre was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were worried about piracy and the potential of that. Video in those early days always had a very seedy reputation, uh, which the studios didn't necessarily like. Um, you know, they thought it tarnished their films and their brand. Um, and they didn't like it uh, because they couldn't control the means of distribution. Mm. Um, you know, it involves third parties. It involved uh, independent video rental stores who they never particularly liked, who were generally founded by um, more predominantly uh, working class entrepreneurial people. Your mom, um, and, your mom and dad stores. I mean, I had about three yeah, in my town. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mom and pop, as 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 they call them in the states. And the kind of rental model, um, the video rental model, came came about because that's how consumers like to do it, and and it happened in spite of the film studios, which which always kind of annoyed them. So. Um, we got The Exorcist. We rented The Exorcist. Um, we watched The Exorcist, and it absolutely terrified the living daylights out of me. I was absolutely petrified. We, um, using the um, then exciting new technology of uh, rewinding and pausing and <laughs> um, slowing it down, we watched the bit where she is um, um, stabbing herself in uh, with the crucifix and uttering all kinds of obscenities. And it was rewinding those and listening to what she was saying, the the, the, the um, blasphemous obscenities um, that really kind of uh, affected uh, affected me. Um, I didn't even get anywhere near the end of that story there at all. Because... Well, finish, finish, it, finish your story off. Go on. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I remember going home, didn't tell my parents I'd, I'd, I'd watched this film, uh, I, I took uh, I took the dog for a walk around the block, and I remember being absolutely terrified by this. Um, and then, I mean, that was kind of my introduction to video, and it was something I just thought, "This is brilliant! This is yeah. brilliant as a format, as a as a concept." And then throughout my life, I've ended up, um, you know, I've written about the Exorcist. I, I wrote about the Exorcist in. 1998 at length when it finally um, was given a certificate by the BBFC for home entertainment release. Hmm. Um, there's a 50th anniversary edition coming out um, this autumn from from Warner, which I am, will again be writing about. So it's kind of been a constant yeah. throughout life, as it were. Yeah, and, and, and did, did you come down to the Fright Fest screening of it? As part of the hundred years of war. No, no, I didn't make. I I spent this year. I spent Fright Fest a couple of visits down, um, mainly in the um, uh, in the Imperial Pub around the corner, uh, seeing people. I was there for the for the nineteen ninety eight theatrical re release. Uh, they held a, a screening and a party in uh, somewhere in the West End, um, mm. at one of the West End cinemas for it. So I have both seen it on the big screen. I've watched it numerous times. And, um, Home entertainment formats as well, obviously. Well, let us move on. And I should say, we are going to stay in the horror world for all three films, um, for your choices. And yeah. for your um, second choice, a 
I think it's safe to say for the British, for certainly for the British market, and probably the same for the states in many ways. This was a this was what a true kind of VHS hit. You know, I don't think many of us would have seen this at the cinemas in any in any mainstream sense. And this is where yeah. VHS opens you up to a world of cinema you couldn't even begin to know existed. And I'm talking about uh, Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. So. If you're watching Exorcist in 79, when are you watching Dawn of the Dead? Dawn of the Dead uh, would have come along um, a few years later. I, I can remember watching a lot of these films in absolutely vivid detail. I can remember whose house I'm, I saw them around more hmm. often than not, who who we watched them with, who was there. Um can't remember exactly what year it would have been. It would have been a couple of years after this. I mean, we we really immersed ourselves in it. I didn't get a, a VCR um, at my family home until uh, 1983, so it would have been somewhere between 1979 and 19 and, and 1983. So, what, what was the venue then for the for that view? And if you didn't get it, I think it was almost certainly around a around a chap called um, Andy Pryor's house. Um, and what stands out from you? What stands out for you from from the viewing? Um, Obviously, the key moment uh, for us, and it was another of those great uh, VHS moments, um, which you rewound and watched again and again. Was 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 helicopter zombie um, <laughs> as the guy gets as, as the zombie gets the um, uh, the top of his head kind of chopped off by the by the helicopter blades, and again that moment alone was 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 an absolutely seminal moment. Um, it was a kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's that perfect film in that, um, and the reason it stayed with me so long is that it was it was gory, it had all those elements in it, but it had, um, you know, it was so much more than that. And mm. It was the kind of film that you'd use when you were trying to tell people that horror was more than just just than just guts and gore, mm. although there was a lot of that in the film. That there were a lot of kind of social messages in it, and the, and 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 it actually. Um, it, you know, was viable as a, as as an art form, as a form of commentary, um, and I think that was kind of that that was a really important film for us, um, for for me and friends. And you, you look at it, um, and similar to all my choices, really. I'm you know I'm a big music fan, um, and over the years I've seen Dawn of the Dead countless times since. I've seen it um, live um, uh, with uh, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin. Um, doing their soundtrack. Oh, really? Um, that's Union Chapel in Islington. Uh, that would have been about 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so it's still that kind of film that 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 has stayed with you throughout those years. Mm. Again, in 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 my um, job as a um, kind of home entertainment journalist writing about video releases, I've written about Dawn of the Dead countless times. I now, as well as doing the Ray Gun, I um, write... Um, uh, I write, I wouldn't say essays because I always think that sounds a bit pretentious, kind of long-form journalism. Um, I write a lot about the history of the of, of the home entertainment industry and specific films within that. So for uh, when Second Sight, um, uh, the wonderful Second Sight label, released um, Dawn of the Dead in a lavish box set a few years ago, um, I wrote a lengthy feature, um, a, kind of charting the... The history of the film, um, as theatrical and, and, and VHS. Um, I spoke to 
someone who worked at, uh, or in fact, I think ran the distributor um, that originally released the film at Theatrical, um, yeah. who, um chap called Neil Abram, lovely guy, whose son, um, who, uh, well, he Neil later went on to film to launch a company called Arrow Films. Um, oh, wow. And uh, his son, Alex Abram, um now uh, runs um, Arrow Films, or more pertinently, Arrow Video. And they've ended up releasing a lot of films like this and, and, and these great um, uh, these great classic horror films in lavish editions. Um, so I wrote a length for the... So, so it's kind of, again, it's another film that's really been a constant. What did you um, find you were well. saying? What did you find you were saying there when you, when, you know, given the opportunity to write about this film, what were you able to say? Well, it was it was less uh, what I think, um, and, and you know, I'm not I'm not a film critic. I'm a film journalist. I'd, I'd say more than anything else. Right. So I was talking to Neil and various other people about the film, the initial releases, the problems it had at the time with the BBFC, its history within um, home entertainment, and the various releases over the years, and which bits were cut and 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 then later reinstated to the film as. Yeah. Kind of yeah, you know, in the in a post nineteen eighty four video recordings act world, the the BBFC were a lot stricter, and slowly they've let people get away with more over the years. But I was going to say, I, I, I mean, think, when you look back to that time and and think now, what 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 can just be on TV, let alone what gets released, it's amazing yeah. to think that we were in such a panic. But that you know, you talk about being able to rewind a film, but actually that was a big revelation, and obviously that was power we never had before. Which I'm yeah. guessing the powers that be—that's what they were scared of. In many, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, James Furman was always very hard on uh, what he'd call imitable violence, um, and imitable moments. You know, I know there's been films cut before when they've shown in great detail how to break into a car, hmm. or they've shown someone breaking into a car, and that is something that people can then copy and do. And yeah. there's certain elements of drug use when you're kind of quite clearly showing how, how how to mainline smack for example yeah you know that's something that people can essentially copy and yeah i mean over the years you've seen the bbfc has become what i'd say would be a lot more sensible in terms of how it how it how it lives but i think there's how it works but i think there's a lot you know, it's still this thing that that, that hangs on. So now, nearly it's, it's forty years since the Video Recordings Act last yeah. year. Um, someone was telling me that for an independent video label now to release a film on on Blu-ray, say two pounds of the cost of that goes to the BBFC. Wow. Um, whereas um, you know, streaming companies don't even need to get a certificate of any of any shape or form. So. They're inherently going up against this this draconian legislation that, that came in nearly forty years ago that is now not fit for purpose at all. Right then, for your final choice, we jump to nineteen eighty two. I think it's safe to say this one is a VHS classic in the sense of um, it it bombed at the box office and was critiqued quite a lot because people really just wanted ET. They didn't want an evil sci fi story, which obviously the thing is. Um, from 1982. Do you want to do you want to talk about what it is, what it means to you, and why you picked it? I mean, it, it was a toss up between um, uh, two John Carpenter films. Um, okay, which uh, Assault and Precinct 13 was 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 another huge film um, on, in, in video terms, um, massive video hit, 
Um, you know, and the UK really helped make that film um, to the level that, as legend has it, um, John Carpenter told the boss of uh, the UK arm of Vestron in the 70s, who initially released Assault on Precinct 13, when its success in the UK fed back into the US, John Carpenter said to the to the boss of um, Vestron in the UK, you know, thank you so much for this. I'm going to name a character in my next film after you. Um, and that boss was called Michael Myers. And, um, no! and that, that, that was where the name Michael Myers comes from. His son, um, Michael Myers' son, Martin, still works in the film industry. Uh, does, does sales and that side. Um, Assault and Precinct 13 is probably the film I've seen more than any other film in my life. Um, oh, wow. I've countless times on VHS. I've seen it on 16mm, 35mm, uh, various things like that. Massive John Carpenter fan. The thing had an equal impact on me because I it was the first uh, X film, or well, it's the second X film I went to see um, at the cinema before the age of eighteen. Ah. Um, I, the first was my mum took me to see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when I was fifteen and looked about ten. <laughs> Um, and told them that that yeah yeah um, she was my mother, and she knew I was eighteen, so they they needed to let me in. Um, and she was a magistrate. She she gave it the whole I'm a magistrate. I wouldn't do anything illegal. The next one I saw at the cinema was the thing, um, which I think, as I remember it, I just kind of uh, just altered the date on my birth certificate um, to uh, help me get in. I don't even think I needed to show it in the end. Uh, I still looked remarkably young. It it was a huge influence uh, on 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 me, um, just because I loved the film so much. Watched it numerous times on VHS. After that, um, I'm a big, uh, you know, I said earlier about about being a big fan of physical media. I'm a, um, uh, I wouldn't say record collector so much as I've amassed a vast um, amount of uh, records, and particularly vinyl. So in the, um, you know, in the, I've written about the thing numerous times in, on, across, you know, I've watched it go from VHS uh, rental and then in my career, I've seen it go from uh, various different price points on VHS, various different repackagings. I've seen it go um, uh, right through to being released by um, Arrow Video on a, on a gorgeous Blu-ray, and I've got the um, uh, soundtrack album, uh, which I think was Waxworks Records, I'm saying, uh, that sort of was some huge limited edition with, you know, lavish packaging and sleeve. And the same with Assault and Precinct 13. I now own pretty much every John Carpenter soundtrack going. Um, and these films were were just hugely important. I don't think, I think within the genre world, Everyone loves John Carpenter. You know, I've been to see him live doing his whole synth thing. These were just hugely, and I remember at the time, and you're, you're, you're saying, you know, as my memory of the, the critical reaction to it and the box office reaction to it is, no, it wasn't that, um, uh, it, it wasn't that uh, successful. It was kind of pretty much dismissed as being um, a bit hokey, sub-alien kind of thing. Mm. Um Although, again, the, the reviews at the time for, for a 16-year-old would, would lead me down into Howard Hawks and things like that because they 
said that, well, it's not a patch on the original, is it? So there was just a lot, a, a lot kind of in it, really, for 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 me to glean. And and yeah, the 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 uh yeah, the soundtrack, the 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 kind of the 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 combination of uh of Morricone and Carpenter kind of led led me down that kind of it, it led to another path of, of of getting into soundtracks, getting into this kind of thing. Um yeah, and obviously, again, it's a film that's that 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 stayed with me throughout because I'm still writing about the thing in the same way I'm still writing about the Exorcist and still writing about the Dawn of the Dead. Um, kind of thirty years afterwards. What do you think is the enduring nature of of genre films like this? What are, what are they doing that means that they're not just vanishing? I mean, obviously, plenty of films were released around this time that vanish without a trace. So why? Yeah, why do you think these still hold their own today? There's always been a, um, uh, I think the word of mouth element, uh, certainly for John Carpenter, has always been really strong. Hmm. Um, and that word of mouth would have stuck, you know, something like The Thing. Um, for me, it was this perfect combination because it had gore in it. Um, it had elements of horror and sci-fi in it. It had this amazing soundtrack. It had a, an incredible uh, wardrobe in it. You know, people I know, who are in the clothes and so on and various kind of Facebook groups and on Twitter will always, will, will, will come winter, will always stick up a, a, a picture of Kurt Russell and co <laughs> wearing their full kind of parkas and, and, um, uh, and Arctic outfits. But, but it's, it's a word of mouth and also always an element of self-discovery, I think. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, when it comes to film history, history is written by the winners and there's a lot of films that, that, that gain, uh, that, that maintain their status because they were successful in certain ways. And then there are films that will rise to the top just because they're great films, really. And I think the thing is one of those that, that, that yes, it didn't, it, you know, it found its audience over the years and this audience grew and grew and grew. It's quite a unique thing, that, isn't it, for a film to sort of endure because it it, it wasn't taken as seriously as it is now when it was released. Whereas, I mean, The Exorcist was up for Academy Awards and all kinds. So there was no doubting yeah. its pedigree when it hit home entertainment. Um, and Romero following up Night of the Living Dead, a seminal horror film. You know, you've got the whole kind of commentary on consumer culture, literally yeah. consuming ourselves and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, the thing came, like you say, hot on the heels of something as successful as the A of Alien. And then more recently had the kind alien like E.T. And, and this thing just yeah. seemed out of step, didn't it? I guess more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. But they're are great, and I think um, part of this enduring appeal is, is is certainly you watch it now. And I've watched this with my eldest son um, a few years ago, and um, as 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 a rite of passage almost. And the effects, uh, you know, you know they're 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 not CGI. You know that they are. Um, uh, you know, created um, uh, on the set, as it were. Mm. Um, but they still really stand up. You know, they've, they've endured remarkably well um, and still look amazing. And, and let's be honest, the thing is literally the the most amazing baddie villain because it isn't anything; it's everything that's living. And therefore, yeah. how do you defeat how do you defeat it? It's yeah, yeah. It's Which such a clever, kind of, simple idea. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you know, it tied in with a lot, and, and I love the kind of bleakness of the ending, uh, the certain open-ended nature of it mm. um, as well, which kind of very much fitted in with that 
the kind of consensus of opinion at that time um, and those kind of bleak ending films that, that was a hangover from the 70s, as it were. No, and I think that's a good thing. Well, look, sir, we've come to the end of your three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. That's a nice little journey we've been on through the, the early 80s of your watching career. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. It's and, and, and given you've been writing about the industry for, for, for 30 years or so and been a fan for longer... Um, one question that, that sort of springs to mind for me to ask you before you go is sort of what's the most significant change you, you, you remember in terms of the home entertainment industry? What, what have you seen that's been the most significant change for you? I would say a few things. You know, the, the, the launch of DVD, um, and I remember going to Warner Brothers' uh, old office um, uh, in Wardour Street um, just near the Blue Post, um, mm. on the corner of Water Street, where Soul Jazz Records is now, sounds mm. of the Universe Records, uh, on that big building on the corner, and sat in an office, and they showed me The Fugitive on DVD. Um, and I remember being blown away at this time, and you kind of got this feeling that you were that you were seeing the future. Mm. Um, I think that was that was one of the biggest moments. I think. Um, a few years after that, in 2003, was when, again from Warner, when they invoked the European Rental Rights Directive, um, I think. And What's that, that one? That, that was essentially <laughs> a rule that said um, they could have two-tiered pricing. Uh, they were putting a lot of titles, Warner had always bought our titles, what we used to call straight to sell-through, uh, or straight to retail, as, as I preferred. Um, in the, uh, so with films like Batman, uh, that came out available to buy before, uh, at the same time as being available to rent with oh, okay. the 1299 um, RRP. But what the Rental Rights Directive said is that, um, said that Warner could sell a film to Woolworths and Tesco's uh, and HMV um, for £10 and they could sell it for whatever they like. But at the same time, Warner could also sell that same film to a video rental store for £50, uh, even though it's exactly the same film. And a rental store couldn't go into Woolworths and buy a copy uh, of that film and then rent it out. They had to sell, they had to rent a copy that they were, that was for rental only. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for the, for the rental industry, really, in the UK um, and elsewhere. And, you know, the, uh, the launch of DVD, everyone will know about that kind of element just had this huge sweeping change. And that was the beginning of the end for the rental industry. There were lots of other things as well. Um, it's, ama it's amazing yeah, how those quick it's happened because if you think about your 1979 story, I mean, Blockbuster didn't open its first store till 1989. So that's a good decade of sort of us evolving into what became the v yeah. VHS rental yeah. industry. And then by the end of the 90s, you get the DVD and George Lucas insisting his film must be digitally projected, which, again, was two digital things happening at the yeah. same time. And then the last 20 years, it's like been on steroids, the rate of change. You know, you think, yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly the yeah. last 15. Somebody, somebody said to me recently, um, uh, a friend of mine who's been in the industry for, for as long as I have. No, he's been in the industry longer than I have. But he's he said that he will um, uh, that he's gonna 
he will spend his entire adult life working in an industry that didn't exist when he was born and will, will no longer exist by the time he dies. You know, it's an incredible, this journey of, of yeah. physical package films and media. Um, you know, it's got longer left than many people anticipate, and I think it's got a good few years left in it. Uh, yeah, left I mean, I mean there's, some, there's some real anomalies, isn't there? Because, I mean, I, I was reading up on it, and it's, it showed you that, like, even though the late 90s is when the DVD arrives, DVD doesn't overtake VHS until 2009, which already, it's then already too late anyway, because streaming's about to happen within two or three years of that. It, it may have been earlier than that, um, certainly. I mean, DVD was incredible because it quickly became the fastest-growing it was popular. Not saying it wasn't popular, but it, but in terms yeah. of rental markets, it yeah. didn't it didn't it didn't completely swamp out because people yeah. still had VHS players. They the, the swamp yeah, tape yeah. was VHS. Well, yeah, I've still got VCR, um, and I've still got uh, I've still got quite a few tapes and and, and so on. Um, you do surprise me. Well, look, sir, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to draw this to a close. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast and sharing your three films and talking about the Reagan newsletter. I'll put details in the show notes so people can contact you should they want to receive the newsletter. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for being a guest. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. It's been an honour and I've really enjoyed it. Come on.